Welcome to a special bonus episode of the RMBC Life podcast. I'm Lisa Laudico, and we're pleased to share this conversation with Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who we met last week as part of our work on the policy episode that was released on April 26th. As we were preparing with patient advocates, we felt it important to hear from someone on the receiving end of our advocacy work. In other words, patient advocacy from a legislator's perspective. We were joined by Medivivers Stage 4 Stampede Florida Captain Abigail Johnston, who, along with being a dear friend of the podcast, is an inspirational advocate in her own right. So think of this as a snapshot of the kind of conversations countless advocates have had in the past with members of Congress, but this time with a congressperson who's actually put her votes and actions to work for all of us. Debbie Wasserman Schultz is the U.S. House Representative for Florida's 23rd District. First elected to Congress in 2005, Congresswoman Wasserman Schultz previously served in the Florida House of Representatives and the Florida Senate, where she originally displayed her philosophy that there is no task too small and no goal too big. She has dedicated her public life to serving South Floridians and standing up for justice, equality, and opportunity wherever and whenever it is threatened. As Florida's first Jewish congresswoman, she has earned the respect of her colleagues for working tirelessly on behalf of seniors, children, and families for nearly three decades. After announcing her own battle with breast cancer in 2009, Wasserman Schultz introduced the Early Act, a piece of legislation designed to increase breast cancer education and awareness. The Early Act became law as part of the Affordable Care Act signed by President Barack Obama in 2010 and reauthorized at the end of 2020. Wasserman Schultz also worked with Republican Congresswoman Renee Elmers to write and pass the PALS Act, which helps increase young women's access to mammograms. In the 117th Congress, Wasserman Schultz serves on the Committee of Oversight and Reform and the House Committee on Appropriations. She's been a tireless defender of Social Security and Medicare and is strongly committed to expanding access to quality and affordable health care, preventing senseless tragedies of gun violence, and defending the fundamental idea that all Americans have the right to be treated equally under the law. This is just a fraction of her official bio. Representative Wasserman Schultz has also been a behind-the-scenes advocate for people living with breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer. She's indeed an important early-stage ally to all of us in the NBC community. She truly gets the bigger picture of what life is like for us. Here's Mama Carmo, president of the Tiger Lily Foundation and another good friend at the pod, describing her friend, Representative Wasserman Schultz. I'm so honored to be able to share this story and these thoughts in honor and celebration of my friend, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Debbie is one of the most amazing people I know. And it's just amazing how you meet certain people and your life changes. So I met Debbie, when I went to a breakfast meeting that I, for some reason, knew that God wanted me to be at. And the day that I went to meet her, my daughter was still in kindergarten. And I got up that morning and I knew I had to go to this meeting and meet this woman, didn't know who she was. And I took my daughter to school early and asked them to take her in before hours. 
and drove to this breakfast meeting, and I heard Debbie speaking about the meaning of service and the meaning of sacrifice and what mothers do for their children and to make the world a better place for them. And as I watched her talk and heard her voice, I, I began myself crying just because I had taken my child to school early and rushed to meet somebody who in my heart and soul knew that would be a, a pivotal point in my life meeting this person, whoever was going to be there. And afterwards went to tell Debbie how much I enjoyed her talk and her authenticity. And she asked me to meet with her and we met, I think a week or two later and sitting with her in her office with her staff and my daughter running around her office was when we birthed the breast cancer early act. It was a really powerful moment for me because I, being a young woman at the time, feeling very much quite ordinary and not knowing my power as an advocate or the power of my story, meeting Debbie and having us just sit there and hold hands and having her say to me, do you know what Bershered means? And really that moment was like magical for us that she and I met in birthing the early act which over the past 10 to 12 years have changed millions of lives, changed the course of how people view young women and breast health, impacted other legislation, and really gave me the belief, you know, like when I met Oprah, what she told me that was that I was born to do this thing and this work and to speak my truth and share my voice. Debbie and I have become great friends. (laughs) There's so much we've done together over the past 12 years you know, worked on bills that became laws together, spoken at countless events. And just having her be a mentor and a friend and say to me that anything's possible for you and anything's possible because you believe in yourself and you believe in your message and you believe in what you were put on this earth to do. And having her encourage me to go into advocacy and her policy and just kind of nudge me along and say, you're on the right path. I believe in you. You're made for this. I also admire her greatly because of her sacrifices she's made in the space. I mean, she was a young woman who learned she had breast cancer and didn't tell anybody. And she worked quietly as she figured out her next steps and underwent countless surgeries and thought of the greater good. And then when it was the right time, when we met, we knew that good would be bigger than the both of us, which it has over the many years. And so when you think about advocacy, it really is about the power of one coming together with other ones to make a difference. It's the power of using your voice. It's the power of speaking up and being consistently representative of your population, as she and I both have been. And it's the power of really cheering somebody on, even when they're not with you. And that's one of the things she's always done for me has been one of my biggest cheerleaders whether I see her or talk to her regularly or not, we're never far apart. And I'm always cheering her on. And I'm just so blessed to know you, Debbie. I hope you're listening to this right now. And I always encourage other advocates to be allies, to be friends, to hold each other up, to support each other. And one of the things that I always love whenever I see Debbie is how she looks at me and I look at her. And we began this journey, you know, both of us really at the beginnings of our advocacy journey. And I see her face and I just smile with a sense of pride, with a sense of sisterhood, with a sense of so much love and honor and respect. And I just thank her for all she's done, the people she's touched through her work. And I always pray for her and I'm thankful for our 
sisterhood of word for shared and what it means and what it brings. And I'm just proud to be able to share this message with her and with all those who are listening to always, again, be educated about the disease, be empowered, be your best advocate. And education and awareness requires learning young. Debbie, thank you for being a friend, a sister. I love you dearly. Here's my conversation with Representative Wasserman Schultz and Abigail Johnston. First of all, thank you so much for having me. This is such a deeply personal topic for me as a breast cancer survivor, you know, and someone who was diagnosed relatively young at 41 years old. I really, I guess, quintessentially consider myself a working mom, someone who is really of the generation that has needed to figure out how to balance work and family. And then in the context of what we're going to talk about today, to suddenly get hit with one day being the picture of health and the next day being a cancer patient uh, in the midst of having a four-year-old and twin nine-year-olds and a husband and a very full-time job as a member of Congress, that really changed my whole outlook. And so I really look at my role as a legislator differently now than I did. I was a breast cancer advocate to start with, but now I really try to shape a lot of my legislative agenda through through how I can make a difference as a result of this devastating healthcare experience. Thank you so much. We know that you've been a major advocate for our community for quite some time. So you have a long history of breast cancer advocacy for both early stage and for metastatic breast cancer, and you've influenced so many people. So what compels you now in 2021 to continue with this work? As all of us who have experienced breast cancer in some way, no matter what stage you were at diagnosis, it never leaves you. I wake up every single day reminded that I am a breast cancer survivor, reminded of that experience. It's really something that shapes you and that for me, having no experience with, with any healthcare challenges up to that point, and then having been through 15 months of health, I wanted to make sure that I used my experience and the platform that I had to make a difference it, to really be able to initially with the early act legislation that I introduced and passed, mm-hmm. but then subsequently to be a legislator, a lawmaker that really is trying to fill the voids that exist. Instead of just checking a box, okay, I went through this experience, I accomplished something significant to address it and move on. None of us ever really move on when you've had cancer because you're always really waiting for that other shoe to drop and you hope that it doesn't. But making sure that women and other cancer patients too, but breast cancer Survivors and patients know that they have me as their quarterback. They have me to really be running the ball every time and any time it's necessary. So how do you set your priorities for breast cancer legislation? You know, determine what you're going to focus on. And I know that you're working on a survivorship bill, which is really exciting to hear about. Some of it is as issues arise, and some of it is from just the conversations that I have 
every day, week to week, month to month, year to year about other people's experiences. When we were passing the Affordable Care Act, and of course, I had just been through my breast cancer experience, and the United States Preventative Services Task Force, <laughs> an organization that is really dramatically out of step with how to actually assess how to address healthcare needs. When they labeled women's need to have a mammogram starting at 40 years old as a grade of C, meaning that it essentially was optional, and that women between 50 and 74 only needed to have mammograms every other year, you can imagine that our women's caucus was pretty outraged. And so through Barbara Mikulski's leadership, we were able to put a pause in the Affordable Care Act on the implementation of that. And then I have every single year extended that pause because amazingly, what you would not realize, and I was stunned, was that after I engaged in the advocacy on behalf of young women survivors and young women breast cancer patients, the pushback that I got for having the audacity to suggest that that age cohort needed attention. We still have 25,000 women under 45 years old diagnosed with breast cancer in this country every single year. And there is a core of the breast cancer community that acts like, because it's a quote unquote small percentage of the overall breast cancer population, that we don't need to take up time or resources to address that, which means you're just writing those women off. So not me, <laughs> not on my watch. So whether it's the PALS Act that I both introduce as legislation, as well as inserting language into the Appropriations Act to make sure that we can extend that pause, or the survivorship legislation that I've been working on for a long time, which really stems from so many conversations and then even my own experience. Thankfully, we're catching breast cancer earlier. So many women are diagnosed earlier, and then you live longer, even MBC patients are living longer, thank God. And so if you're spending a number of years as a survivor or a previvor or a metavivor, we need comprehensive programmatic statutory help for how to care for survivors, for how to care for ourselves, and how to make sure that we stay survivors and how metavivors become survivors. So you talk about some of the legislation that you've been a leader on, and I know that you've been a longstanding supporter and co-sponsor of the bill that used to be known as the Metastatic Breast Cancer Access to Care Act, and in the last Congress was H.R. 2178. So it was supposed to fast-track disability and federal health care benefits. This is exactly what you're talking about. How do we make sure that people don't have to choose between treatment and food on their table. And I know people personally that have had this struggle. A member of our podcast team has posted about it, that it is her struggle. And so this is a very real thing for all of us. And it's such an important bill. And of course, it never made it to the floor. So given that individuals living with MBC, we continue to die still between two to five years. That's the, still the average. More and more younger women, as you just noted, are actually being diagnosed with MBC and de novo from the beginning, often misdiagnosed, which is why it reaches stage four, because they're not believed when something's wrong. Right. And then now we're at 120 people a day. This was just reported in the last month are dying from NBC. So our numbers are not going down. In fact, they're going up. And so we're just puzzled. Where are the pressure points on getting this particular legislation to the floor? We just don't understand. So I'm confounded as well. Some of it is most definitely the really 
intensified difficulty of passing anything in Washington right now. As you might have noticed over the last few years, Congress has not been exactly the most cooperative place to get things done. So even something seemingly a consensus opportunity as the metastatic breast cancer legislation would face obstacles and it would face obstacles anyway. I mean, I would say that compromise is important. Sometimes if you can't get the whole loaf, we have to try to get as much of that loaf as we can. And we also, I think, have to have some creativity involved. Often as an appropriator, what I try to do, which is what I do with the PALS Act, for example, at the end of the last Congress, I wasn't able to get the PALS Act legislation to move. And that was because we had the language in the appropriations bill and it wasn't expiring immediately. Because I'm able to make sure that that remains in the appropriations bill, it's almost like we're working against ourselves. But we do have a commitment on that to make sure we can get the legislation taking up. We need to be able to use the appropriations process to make progress, to push that boulder up the mountain. And I think I'm going to be honest or straightforward. I try to always be honest. I think that a lot of people don't know quite how to deal with metastatic cancer. I mean, I think it's scary. Couldn't possibly be more scary than for the patients and their families. But it's just, I see people tiptoe around the conversation. And it's also difficult. It's different than helping to increase the number of survivors we have of non-metastatic breast cancer. But this is really, really challenging. And so I, I think that Quite frankly, I think some of our scientists and medical professionals and experts might look at the low-hanging fruit of non-metastatic cancer progress as being a higher priority because they can see achievement more readily than this. Some of what I'm saying is speculation, but I don't think it's a lack of caring at all. I think hard things are hard to get done. The reason that I love being a legislator and how I have not cracked up during my time as a legislator from the infuriating process of trying to get things accomplished is that you have to delight in incremental change. So whatever progress we can make is important. I think we also need to make the topic of metastatic cancer less taboo, really. And having podcasts like this, people just don't, people are uncomfortable talking to and talking about a terminal diagnosis. I know no one understands that better than the people listening to this podcast and to the incredible women that I'm talking with right now, you all. And some of that, Lisa, I really think is the more you talk about it, the more you educate people, the more comfort people have in talking about it and in digging in and trying to find a way to make progress. And I found that oftentimes I think people dismiss education and awareness as a goal because people might perceive that's not enough. You can't just educate people and raise awareness. Well, in the legislative process, the more education and awareness we have throughout my colleagues about what's achievable and what's necessary, the more folks we have sign up to help solve the problem. That's just my two cents. I so appreciate that. Thank you for that. I appreciate your frankness. You're welcome. I mean, I think it's important that we be frank because we want to achieve big, difficult things. And if we achieve this big, difficult thing, there are women that will live. Yeah, the stakes are pretty high. But also, I I think it's so important when you talk about 
making sure that people in leadership understand really what metastatic breast cancer is all about and to dispel the myths and the scariness about it. It is a terrifying disease and it is terminal and we need help with that. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's why we wanted to talk to you today. I know Abigail has a couple of questions for you as well. Oh, great. Sure. Yes. Thank you, Lisa. So Congresswoman, I want to first offer our congratulations on the early act that was signed into law in December. That stands for Education and Awareness Requires Learning Young Act. And I have little kids, mine are eight and almost six, so that learning young is something very important to me anyway. But given that success, are there any lessons that MBC and breast cancer advocates can learn from the support garnered for that type of legislation? Oh, yes. So this was a reauthorization of the legislation that I passed 10 years ago that I was able to amend. The way I passed that was by amending it onto the Affordable Care Act. So (laughs) one thing we all have to do as legislators and also advocates is not be insistent on our legislation passing as a standalone bill. Get it done any way you can. If you look at the legislative history, the way they show legislation, like I didn't pass that bill. Because the standalone itself didn't pass alone, but it passed as part of broader legislation. And so that's process stuff that's not that important. But for advocates, it is important because the way I passed the reauthorization of the early act and got an almost $5 million bump in the authorization level this time was by working across the aisle with my colleague in the Senate, who's a Republican. And that was so important because he was able to help me get it into the final omnibus package. And so I passed it out of the House easily because we're in the majority and Democrats are in the majority. But getting an increase of $5 million or an increase of any funding in the Senate is nearly impossible. And he told me he didn't think it was going to likely be possible. But because of my relationship with him, which, by the way, I built by traveling with him on a congressional delegation trip that was international. I would never, ever have gotten to know him if not for my traveling with him. And in fact, he probably would have thought and did think that I had three heads before we traveled together. And so building relationships, advocates building relationships, as well as members and reaching across the aisle, we might not be able to get to know every member, but it only takes one. It only takes one on each side to accomplish something. So That was such a big deal because we have another five years of authorization of funding. We have more grants that we can give organizations. What the Early Act did is it created a national education and awareness campaign targeted at young women so we could make sure that they could pay attention to their breast health. But also, as we've been talking about here, Abigail, we also target with an education and awareness campaign through the CDC healthcare providers who are often so dismissive of younger women when they come in presenting with a problem. And that's how we end up, unfortunately, with far too many MBC patients, because we know that younger women are often diagnosed at a later stage, in part because of it being dismissed by the patient. And then by the time they do go in, they're they're initially often dismissed by the healthcare provider. So it was a very big win. I was really, really thrilled. And we just need to keep going forward. Absolutely. And thank you for that. I was personally diagnosed de novo metastatic at 38. So that's of particular interest and concern for me. But just 
building on my previous question about being the most effective, what have you seen that has been the most effective and most powerful advocacy as a congressperson, whether from constituents or lobbyists? What is the most effective in winning over various members of Congress to the cause? There's no question that my answer is personal interaction. And obviously, it's not always easy to personally interact with your member of Congress. And in the pandemic, it makes it even more difficult because, as we know, we do almost everything virtually for the last a little more than a year. Take every opportunity that you can to be in either a virtual or in an in-person room with your member of Congress. So if they have a virtual town hall, go on their virtual town hall, type out a question, try to get recognized for that question. Once we get back to full-time in-person activity, attend a town hall or an event where you know your member of Congress locally is going to be. And you might have a chance to interact with them in the Q&A, but if you don't, wait afterwards, go up to them at the podium and speak to them personally at that point. Because that kind of interaction, so many times I have had a chance to talk with someone who brings an issue to my attention that I would never have known about if not for the perseverance of that advocate and that constituent. And definitely make sure that you pursue your own member, because obviously we each represent the single member district. And so the attention that we pay the most to is to our own constituents. Actually, more advice, go on those Hill lobby days. I know a lot of people think that's a waste of time or they don't have time to do it. But those days on the Hill, when you have constituents come up, if I have constituents who have schlepped up to Washington to meet with me, and I know they live in my district. I'm much more likely to meet with those folks than I am the lobbyists who are here all the time, quite frankly. Sure. That's really great advice and encouraging to know that those of us that have been going down to Washington, that we should keep on doing that. And also, I love the idea of just really getting to know your local representatives and actually joining their town halls. It's just simple, but great advice. And it's always good to hear from representatives like yourself that that's actually what works. You don't even necessarily have to wait for an event that your member has initiated. I mean, I've had people ask me if they would join them for a roundtable discussion about an issue. So you could initiate an idea for your local member and pull together the people that you want them to talk to. And you might get varying degrees of response, but suggest that to your own member. That's terrific. So thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing you on our lobby days when we can actually meet you in person. Since we recorded this interview, the Metastatic Breast Cancer Access to Care Act was referred to committee in the Senate. We look forward to advocating for this important legislation yet again. This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and our truly amazing team of Bob DeVito, Dara Finkelstein, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, Ellen Landsberger, Sheila McGlone, Riley Starr, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, the Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. Our senior intern is Sarah Mann, along with interns Angelica Alberstadt, Emily Lewis, Samantha Silverstein, and Amy Tedeschi. 
We have benefited from expert social media consulting from Jake Amarelli and sound design and original music compositions from Jim Cremens and Samantha Silverstein. You can find more episodes of Our NBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us and look for a new episode every Monday. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.